From Creation Ministries International, you're listening to Creation.com's article podcast. The research and insights that give God the glory, refutes evolution, and gives you the answers to defend your faith. I'm Joseph Darnell. Nearly 100 years ago, a Scopes monkey trial rocked the world. It still affects us today. The questions of academic freedom, the teaching of evolution in school, and a host of associated issues hinge on what happened in a sleepy little southern American town during the broiling hot July of 1925. In March of 1925, the state legislature of Tennessee had unanimously passed the Butler Act. It specifically forbade the teaching of evolution in educational institutions. It was similar to the laws that had been passed in 19 other states and did not restrict teaching in Old Earth or evolution of other life forms. Yet the evolutionary community was not going to stand for it. Things were getting out of control. Secular socialists, industrialists, evolutionists, and religious Unitarians had joined forces to create the American system of education. They could not sit by as one state bucked their plans. Most people in the state of Tennessee were dirt poor, following the Civil War in 1861 through 65, and the Reconstruction period from 65 through 77 and its long-term effects. Worse, the state had a high proportion of self-proclaimed Christians. Something had to be done. The American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, advertised for someone willing to challenge the law. It would require a teacher to simply open the textbook that was already approved by the Tennessee Department of Education and already in use in Tennessee classrooms and teach about human evolution. They found a man who agreed to claim that he had willingly broken the law and the state was set. Decades prior to the trial in the late 1880s, George Campbell, the politically and scientifically astute British 8th Duke of Argyle had written an essay in which he excoriated the reign of terror precipitated by evolutionists against their opponents. The evolutionists in Britain did everything they could to pillory their detractors, to obfuscate the scientific facts, and to get their people into positions of power in academia, government, and religion. He titled his essay, A Great Lesson. Forty years later, America was about to be subject to the same treatment and the Christians didn't see it coming. Scopes at 100 Written by Dr. Rob Carter John Scopes was a high school football coach in the small Tennessee town of Dayton. He had majored in law at the University of Kentucky. Apparently, he had been called in as a substitute teacher for the biology class, In May of 1925, it was claimed that he had taught man evolved from apes, which is exactly what the law in Tennessee prohibited. After the trial, he said he had skipped the evolution section in the textbook, but this did not matter, for his testimony was eclipsed by the clash of titans happening between the prosecuting and defense attorneys. In 1932, he ran for Congress in Kentucky as a socialist and lost. He spent the rest of his life as a geologist working in the oil and gas industry. Clarence Darrow was the defense attorney at the trial. He was also a self-described skeptic and agnostic. In an essay written a few years after the trial titled, Why I Am an Agnostic, he railed against the supposedly superstitious beliefs of the Bible, citing the creation account, the fall, the confusion of languages at Babel, Joshua's long day, the virgin birth of Christ, 
prophecies, miracles, and the existence of a soul. Directly contradicting the Bible, he concluded his argument by saying, The fear of God is not the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the death of wisdom. Skepticism and doubt lead to study and investigation, and investigation is the beginning of wisdom. The modern world is the child of doubt and inquiry, as the ancient world was the child of fear and faith. Clearly, this was an opponent to be taken seriously, but there is even more to the man that should have concerned the prosecution. In 1924, just prior to his appearance at the Scopes trial, he was the defense attorney during the trial of the century, as it was called. His clients, Leopold and Loeb, were two rich teenage boys from Chicago who had killed their neighbor, a younger boy, for the fun of it. After the jury was assembled and the trial was ready, the judge asked Darrow how his clients would like to plead. His response was simple. It went something like, Your Honor, my clients would like to plead guilty. <laughs> this was shocking. They were facing the death penalty. But Darrow had a plan. Once that plea was submitted, the trial moved directly to the sentencing phase. There was no jury. There was no prosecuting attorney. There was just Darrow and the judge, and Darrow took several days, 12 hours of straight talking, to make his closing argument. In fact, that defense became a text used in American law schools for the next 50 years. What was his defense? Only that his clients could not help themselves because they were the product of their evolutionary heritage. Leopold and Loeb got life in prison, and Darrow was world famous. He was then picked by the ACLU to change the Tennessee law that forbade the teaching of human evolution. William Jennings Bryan was one of America's last great statesmen. He was a populist, had run for president on the Democrat ticket three times. He was one of the most famous men in America. It would be difficult to classify him using modern political terms, but because of his desire for a radical redistribution of wealth, we would be forced to place him on the extreme left. He also believed in deep time and geological evolution. Yes, the man picked to argue against teaching evolution in Tennessee schools was a proponent of millions of years and the evolution of life from a common ancestor. What Mr. Bryan did not accept was that humans evolved from apes. Why? Because if this were true, he understood there was no justification for any of his social programs. If we evolved from animals, it meant we were no better than animals. So why would one human care for another? Brian started off in a bad position. He had a pseudo-biblical position that was essentially indefensible, especially when sparring with a man like Darrow. Considering that this trial was going to profoundly reshape America for the foreseeable future, the Bible-believing conservatives should have been seriously worried. The press added a circus-like atmosphere to the event. The little town of Dayton was turned upside down and packed with throngs of people. Sensationalized trials are not a good recipe for justice, and reporting then was no less biased than it is today. The textbook involving the dispute was Hunter Civic Biology. 
To any modern person, this book was sickening. Forget the teaching of evolution, it directly taught that whites were superior to blacks. That should have been enough to justify rejecting it, but the leading evolutionary scientists of the day were abject racists, especially by today's standards. It also used the ideas of Ernst Haeckel, an ardent Darwinist and apostle of deceit, that the human embryo goes through stages of evolution as it grows. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny was the associated phrase, but it does not appear in the book. The now discredited horse evolution series was featured, as well as the moribund vestigial organ argument and a host of other fallacious ideas that have not withstood the test of time, like eugenics. One thing we should all remember is that the facts have never been important for the evolutionary argument. This is a philosophical and religious debate, much more so than a debate about facts. We are not arguing over what we can see, but what is meant by what we see. The evolution-creation debate is about operational science versus historical science. Also, most of the arguments for evolution fit nicely within biblical creation, like natural selection, change over time, the fossil record in general, and similarity among the diverse life forms on Earth. We must keep in mind the difference between operational and historical science, and we must remember that this is a spiritual battle for the hearts and minds of human beings. Nebraska Man was also an important issue of the time, even if it was not brought up in the trial. In 1922, a tooth was sent to the evolutionist Henry Fairfield Osborne, an influential paleontologist and president of the American Museum of Natural History in New York. He was also a leading member of the ACLU. It was he who claimed this tooth was from an ancient ape man. The claims were sensational, leading to a plethora of dioramas and diagrams of this newest ape man that captured public imagination. After all, if science said it, who could contradict it? Yet it was a fraud. Nebraska man was nothing but the tooth of a pig. Creationists have discussed Nebraska man often, but it is now so far in the past that the argument should be retired. I only bring it up here because it was such an influential issue at the time of the trial. It's not like all evolutionists are liars, but it was as if someone had cooked up a made-to-order ape-man claim to undermine Brian's position, almost as soon as he had begun speaking against evolution in the early 1920s. Coincidentally, or maybe not, William Jennings Bryan was from Nebraska. The fraud was discovered soon after the trial, and Nebraska man was shoved off to the side in 1927 but the damage had already been done. The scientific arguments used in the trial were greatly flawed, but a lawyer and a politician were facing off. Why would we expect them to understand science? In fact, Darrow did not seem interested in the science or in logic. He just wanted to win, and he put all his lawyerly tactics into play. Foolishly, against any normal court procedures, Brian agreed to take the stand and to be cross-examined by Darrow. He had been promised that they would reverse positions and Brian would get a shot at Darrow. But when Brian took the stand, he was torn apart. Darrow knew that he believed in millions of years and evolution in general, so he asked him questions like, where did Cain get his wife? This is something I have not personally heard in years, but it was an incredibly common question up through the 1980s at least. Why? First, because this was the period where the famous 1960s movie and play Inherit the Wind was popular. 
The film was later remade for television in 1988 and 99. Second, it opens a giant can of worms. Most Christians believe that the flood was local and that there were people outside the garden. Also, right after Cain was marked and banished by God, the Bible says that he had children with his wife and started building cities. How could this be true if Adam and Eve were the first and only people on earth and Cain was their firstborn? Where do all the other people come from? Of course, this has a simple answer, but Brian was no textual scholar. His answer was downright embarrassing. But the goal was to embarrass Brian, and hence to discredit Christianity. Guess what happened when it was Darrow's turn to be cross-examined? He said something to the effect of, Your Honor, my client would like to plead guilty. And just like that, the trial was over. Brian was made to look like a fool. Christians were made to look like ignorant rubes. This was truly a pyrrhic victory for the Bible Belt and for Christianity across the Western world. The Scopes trial was a theoretical win for the creationists, though. John Scopes was found guilty and fined $100. The teaching of evolution was minimized in American public schools for the next 35 years. It was always simmering in the background, and it was taught openly at universities. But the two sides had declared a truce of sorts, as the evolutionists plotted to flip the situation in their favor. The opportunity came in 1957, when the Soviets launched the world's first satellite, Sputnik. The free world was sent into a frenzy, and the evolutionists capitalized on it by declaring that we were falling behind, and that science must be taught with no restrictions. The US had the capability to put a satellite into orbit already, but President Eisenhower told Werner von Braun, who later became a Bible believer, to put a pause on launching his orbit-capable rocket until after the Soviets made the first launch. He wanted the opposition to open space up so the US would not be accused of spying on the Soviets. Once that had been done, however, orbital satellites were fair game. The US launched their first satellite in 1958, yet the world knew little of these political machinations at the time, and the evolutionary community used this to their advantage. Around the same time, 30 years after the trial, the popular play was written. Enough time had elapsed that the writers could get away with straying far from reality. They changed the names of the primary players to give it a veneer of fiction, but it is quite easy to see that they were playing fast and loose with history while at the same time denigrating people of faith. The movie version starring Spencer Tracy was made in 1960. Colonel Drummond, can't you understand that if you take a law like evolution and you make it a crime to teach it in the public schools, tomorrow you can make it a crime to teach it in the private schools, and tomorrow you may make it a crime to read about it, and soon you may ban books and newspapers, and then you may turn Catholic against Protestant, and Protestant against Protestant, and try to foist your own religion upon the mind of man. If you can do one, you can do the other. Because fanaticism and ignorance is forever busy and needs feeding. But both the play and the movie were a travesty of truth. It was a polemical hit piece designed to mock Christianity. The play was performed innumerable times, even in the Nomaly Christian High School where I was teaching in the 1990s. They made Brian, one of the greatest orators of American history, look like an abject fool. 
In the play, Darrow is cast as a hero, not as a conniving trial lawyer with such a sour personality that he was not invited to work on the appeal after the case was lost. Brian, in an apoplectic fit, dies on the courtroom floor. It did not help that he died three days after the trial of complications from diabetes. The Scopes trial was the last significant court case that was won by our side. Since then, multiple cases have been processed, some even reaching high courts that can make precedent-setting decisions. For example, the Dover decision. Yet, in almost every case, students, teachers, schools, and states have seen their rights restricted. Secularists have celebrated this and have done their best to ignore the counter-arguments. Perhaps the biggest problem is that the lawyers and politicians involved have consistently failed to identify the root cause of the issue. The problem is that evolutionary thinking has completely permeated the legal system. The issue is not about prayer in schools or the teaching of evolution without criticism being allowed. These are symptoms of a system that has rejected Christian philosophy and thinking wholesale. The question has been raised. Have we learned our lesson? We are in a spiritual battle against powerful adversaries and the enemies of the gospel are not going to stop. But we have the creator of the universe on our side. Since this is a heavenly battle, the classroom is not where the debate will be won, but we are here on earth, so the goal is to work within our own sphere of influence, to be used by God to witness to the name and works of Jesus in whatever way we are called. Brian, even though he was the commensurate gentleman, fumbled his answers at critical moments. He was not properly prepared, yet we can learn from his example. Let us follow the mandate given to us in 1 Peter 3.15 to be both respectful and prepared. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Debate over the opening chapters of Genesis have continued for over a century and a half since Charles Darwin advanced his revolutionary ideas. Arguments that once raged between liberals and evangelicals are now mainstream evangelical debates. Was there a historical Adam and Eve, an actual original sin, and how did the New Testament writers, including the Lord Jesus Christ himself, treat Genesis? Does theistic evolution enhance our understanding of origins and Christian doctrine? Author Philip Bell's book, Evolution and the Christian Faith, sets out to explore these questions in detail. It assesses the impact of evolutionary thinking in society at large, and whether or not theistic evolution is compatible with core Christian doctrines. The attributes of God, the deity of Jesus Christ, the problem of evil, the nature of mankind, original sin, death, the gospel, the restored new creation, missions, and evangelism. You will find Evolution and the Christian Faith available at creation.com store. A link to it is available in the show notes. For everyone at Creation Ministries International, thanks for listening. <laughs>